I'll read it if you can follow along. Uh, I'm actually going to, yes, read from chapter, uh, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. I pray, Lord, as we hear this sermon, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that as we speak about sin, as we speak about grace, and as we speak finally about the hope of salvation, that you would allow us to really understand the gospel fully. I pray, Lord, that this would uh, penetrate our hearts so that as we move forward, we would be able to move forward in faith, knowing how good you are and, and that we can just simply trust in all that you have already done for us. And so we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, today's sermon title is called Sin, Grace, and Hope. Uh, John Steinbeck is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Um, he is considered one of the most influential, influential American authors uh, in the history of America, and he was born in the early 1900s. Um, he is probably best known for his one novel that maybe many of you had to read in high school, I know I, I had to, uh, called Grapes of Wrath, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, but for John Steinbeck in some of his writings, he uh, said that his masterpiece, his, his greatest novel, wasn't actually Grapes of Wrath. He said his greatest novel that he had written was a book called East of Eden. And you see, he said he got this title from the Bible in this passage where it says in verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land east of Eden. You see, this phrase, east of Eden, means in essence that life is hard. It's the idea that, look, we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And yes, Eden was there, but now we are way east of Eden. And when you read this book that he wrote, it shows this. Because when you look at the main characters, either through their own mistakes or by accident, 
they are continually struggling with their health. They are continually struggling with their finances. They are continually struggling with their relationships with one another. And it's one disaster after another because they're living east of Eden. And yet at the very end, John Steinbeck, he gives this glimmer of hope. Now, church, what I wanted to do today was share the story of Cain and Abel. Because for him, he said that he got that structure from this very passage. And what we want to see is that, yes, the story of Cain and Abel is one of a fallen world. It shows one of the most terrible sins that you could commit. And it shows the very first murder that you would ever see. But at the very end, there is this glimmer of hope. And it's the hope of salvation. And so in this passage and in this sermon, I just wanted to look at three things. Three things. Number one, the power of sin. Number two, the grace of God. And lastly, the hope of salvation. So first, the power of sin. In verse 7, God says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See here, God tells Cain something really interesting, and it's an important principle that we have to understand as well, that sin is crouching at the door. You see, the word that God uses for crouch is the same word that we use when tigers are hunting their prey. Now, if you've ever seen the National Geographic channel when you were growing up, or if you are too young for that, then if you've watched Tiger King on Netflix, then you know that tigers don't simply hunt by lollygagging around or by running up and down the jungle. You know that when a tiger hunts, it sees its prey, it crouches down, and it stays completely still. The tiger will crouch down and stay that way in order to be invisible to its prey. God says that sin hunts you like a tiger. It doesn't come in loud and running. It's not going to be boisterous or say a bunch of words or announce that it's here. It will crouch next to you by the door and wait until you think that it's invisible. And you see, the way that sin is able to do this is by doing two things. First is to show itself as a good thing. And second is to downplay how powerful it really is. Let me give you an example of how it can show itself as a good thing. For example, you see, many of us are able to use many excuses for the sin in our lives. For some of us, money is everything. It is the engine of how we move. It is how we think. It is how we are motivated. It is the identity of our lives. It is how we structure everything about us. And yet, sin is going to tell you that you're simply just being frugal. 
for some of us, we focus on work more than anything else. For some of us, we center our entire lives around our careers, and we want that more than anything, and that includes God, and that includes our work on Sundays, that includes our work on any other time. We just need to work. And yet what sin is going to tell us is that we're being productive. Now, for some of us, we are willing to step over other people in order to get a better career. For some of us, we're willing to cut corners, to do something unethical, to lie, cheat, and steal in order to get that promotion or to go ahead. And you see, sin is just simply going to tell you that you are good at business. See, sin is dangerous in that way. It will never, ever tell you in a loud voice how powerful it really is. It's never going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Instead, it's going to simply change the narrative. And it will say, no, 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 what you're doing is actually very, very good. Now, the other way that sin can crouch is by downplaying how powerful it really is. For example... We may have this grudge against someone, but many of us won't ever approach a brother or a sister about it because it's not going to be that big of a deal. We think, you know what, this is just going to pass by. This is something that we don't really need to talk about. But the truth is, the longer it festers within your heart, the more it will take over every part of your life. And the bitterness that you have toward that one person is going to eventually come out. And many times what happens is that it doesn't come out at that one person. Instead, it comes out in ways that you are subconscious about to your friends and to your family and to those who are closest to you. But here's the thing. Look at what God says at the end of verse 7. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. What God is explaining is that when sin is crouching at the door, yes, it's powerful, and yes, it's hidden, but it's at its earliest stages. It's at the early stages of bitterness, it's at the early stages of pride, and it's at the early stages of greed. And God is saying that when you are able to recognize sin at that stage, when it's simply crouching down, then you are able to have control over it. You are able to rule it. So the thing is, even though sin is crouching, and even though it's hidden, and even though it's powerful, you have the ability to recognize it and to control it. So church, what I want to do is end this one point with this one question. Do you know what your hidden sins are? Do you know where in your life you are making those types of excuses? Do you know where in your behavior that you are downplaying the seriousness of what's happening between you and someone else? Church, that's the question here that I believe God is trying to say in this text. What sins are crouching in your life? Look, there's nobody more under the power of something when they don't realize they're under the power of it. 
And for a lot of us, we can think, look, sin is crouching down, it's hidden, and it's those sins that we don't know about that, gonna, that are going to have the most power over us. And that's true. And yet what the Bible says is that the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can recognize those sins. And that's where the Holy Spirit is able to really work in us, that he makes evident the sins in our lives. In Galatians 5, it says that the Holy Spirit names our sins and it convicts our hearts so that we are able to turn away from them. God is able to give us that type of helper, not to leave us by the side, not to say that he can do it all, not to say that he can, not to say that we can do it all, not to say that we are the ones who are able to do everything, but to say that he is, that, to say that he is able to help us in our time of need. Sin is powerful because it is hidden, but there is power over it through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, secondly, this passage, it shows us the grace of God. You know, one of the um, biggest complaints, uh, I don't know if it's complaints, but one of the biggest questions that I get uh, over the years of ministry is that God is too judgmental. Uh, and one of the biggest misunderstandings that I receive a lot is that the God of the Old Testament is one of complete wrath and the God of the New Testament is one of complete grace. But when we look at this passage, it's, it's pretty old when you consider the Old Testament as Genesis. And yet we see a God who is so gentle. And we see a God who is so good. Because after the offering made by Abel, God, he was pleased. But after Cain gave his, it says that God did not accept it and had no regard for it. So Cain, it says, goes off by himself, upset. Verse 6 says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? You see, for God here, he goes to Cain and initiates first. It says that Cain's face fell, and that's this Hebrew word meaning that Cain fell into depression. He began to spiral down. And yet what we see is that God isn't waiting up in heaven with his arms crossed, waiting for Cain to come to him. Instead, it says that God is the one that goes to Cain and talks to him. Look, what other religions are going to teach you is that we have to reach up to God. Is that we have to do certain steps or we have to reach a certain state in order for God to accept us. And yet Christianity is the one where God tells us that he is willing to come down and save us where we are today. You know, I remember when I was younger, uh, having to follow so many rules and trying to be a certain way. And a lot of it was because I was a pastor's kid. And I remember my parents and my family kind of pushing that on me. And, and I remember that's kind of how I felt God must be too that he required me just to follow a bunch of rules and to, to be a certain way in order for, for me to be loved. And it's why I really didn't 
enjoy God. I really didn't love God growing up. And it's why in college, at the first opportunity I could, I ran away from the church. I purposely went to school in California so that I would never have to really confront my parents about it either. And so I remember going off and, and doing that and, and being completely away from the church. But there was one summer during that time that there was this Christian camp and, and for some reason I decided to go. And I went there and, and I remember praying to God saying, look, this is going to be my final straw with you. This is going to be the final thing that I'm going to come up to you and ask. And if you don't really show me that you care for me, if you show me that you're just like how you were before, of, of me having to follow the rules, of me having to do these things, then I'm done. I'm going to try to find a different God. And I remember there, there was one thing that he said to me, and it, there wasn't a bolt of lightning, there wasn't some type of fire that fell down or this gush of wind or something like that. There was nothing like that. It was just this really simple phrase. And it was so clear to me. And he said, look, I'm here and I'm willing to wait for you. That was it. Like that was, that was all I heard. Like that was all I felt also. But that was the only thing I needed in that moment. Because for me, like, I was, I was trying so hard to please God. I was trying so hard to find God's love. And yet at the very end, what I've realized is that God had loved me from the beginning. He was simply waiting for me to realize that. And I think that's the story of the gospel today too. That we can think of God as very judgmental. We can think of God as having all of these rules in place. And we can think that way because we are living in a fallen world. We are living east of Eden. And it seems like the rules of everybody else is the rules that God has put in place. And yet what God is simply telling you is I believe the same thing he has told me. Which is, hey, I have loved you from the beginning. And I'm going to wait until you simply realize that. You know, God, he was really gentle to me. And as I was studying this passage and looking at the way that God treated Cain, that characteristic of the gentleness of God was just so evident. Uh, Cain, you see, he was in the wrong. He was the one who gave, who gave that unfit offering. He was the one who messed up. And yet God, he didn't come down with anger. He didn't come down with rules. You see, he came to Cain just was next to him and then encouraged him. Look at what God says at the end of verse 7. He says, you must rule over it. What God is saying is, look, sin is powerful. It's crouching at your door. It's near your heart. But you are able to rule over it, Cain. This sin is dangerous, but you are able to overcome it, Cain. For a long time when I was younger, I thought that God was in his heavenly place putting traps in the road. And the minute he, we mess up, man, he's, he's excited to punish us. But God it shows again and again in the Bible that he doesn't do that. That's not his character. His character is one of love and of gentleness. That he comes beside Cain at the most crucial hour. 
And he says, look, I know you are able to do this. I know you are able to rule over this. And guess what? Even through this darkness, I will lead you. That even in this shadow, I am going to be next to you. What a good God. What a gracious God. There's also one thing I want to say on the other side of this, which is that God is gentle, but he is always going to point out sin in our lives. See, God here, he asks a question to Cain. And when God asks questions, it's never because he doesn't know the answer. When God asks this question, it was to show Cain that for Cain, his love wasn't centered on God. That his anger wasn't coming from a place where God was the middle. It was coming from a place where he was in the middle. And you see, the moment that we begin to build our identity on something other than the Lord, God is going to come down and he's going to confront us and make sure that we realize that. Our God is a gentle God, but don't mistake his gentleness for some type of complacency. He is always going to confront the sin in our lives that we need to be confronted with. And there are going to be times when he breaks down everything in our lives. When he breaks down the foundations, when he breaks down, when he breaks down the, the stones that are supporting us, when he breaks down everything around us. Because what he wants to do is rebuild us gently in his image. You know, our God is a gracious God. And lastly, this passage, it shows us the hope of salvation. It says that here, Cain brought fruit from the ground. And Abel brought uh, a lamb from his flock. And it says, yet God accepts Abel but rejects Cain. Now, the question is, why would God accept Abel and not Cain? Because from what we know, at least from what we can infer in this passage, both these brothers believed in God. They were both hard workers. And they both sacrificed when needed. So what was the difference? Well, in this passage, we don't get too much. But in Hebrews 11.4, it gives us a little bit more detail. And it says that the difference between these two brothers is that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith and Cain did not. But you see, that can't just mean having faith in God because Cain, we know, was having a conversation with God. He was having a dialogue back and forth, so of course he would believe in God. You see, the difference is not faith in God, it's faith in the grace of God. God told their parents that someday he was going to send somebody to crush the serpent's head. God told his parents that someday he was going to send someone to save them from their sin. That he was going to restore them back to paradise. That even though right now they're east of Eden, that even though right now they're in the fallen world, that one day he would bring somebody in order to restore them back to paradise. 
So when it says that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, it can only mean one thing, that he offered it in gratitude as a response to what God would do. But for Cain, you see, Cain wasn't giving in faith. Cain was giving to God as a way to earn salvation, as a means to go to heaven. See, there are two ways that you can come before God. There are two ways that you can give to the Lord. There's two ways that you can worship him. The first is by giving God, the first is by giving God what you can give him as a response in gratitude to all that God has done for you, knowing that he completely accepts you through Jesus Christ. And the other way is that when you give to God, you give thinking that your gifts are going to earn you a spot in heaven. Now, church, one of the clearest ways you can know if you are one or the other is if, look, are you always mad or always jealous or always frustrated at God because you believe that God did not give you the life that you deserve to have. Man, if that's the case for you, and if God is stirring your heart in that way, then, then maybe it's time for you to begin to adjust your heart back to the Lord. Maybe it's time for you to understand that you are not giving the right types of gifts to the Lord. Because inside, many of us try to buy God's favor and his salvation by giving our money and our time to him, when it should be only as a response to all that he has done for us. And I know that this can be pretty difficult. But here's the thing. Cain was in the wrong. And yet in verse 15, it says that the Lord put a mark on Cain. And he said that, I am going to put a mark on you. I am going to protect you just in case someone tries to come and attack you. You see, God was still able to protect Cain even in his sin of killing his brother. And that's interesting because Abel's death, it demanded justice. And yet God was still willing to show grace to Cain. Now, for many of us, we may not have killed someone, but the Bible says that in our anger, when we store up that anger within our heart, that is the same as killing them. And the sins in our life are too numerous to count, and they all demand payment in order for us to be justified. But here's the thing, we can't pay it back. But church, in Hebrews 11, it says that there was blood shed that was given more grace than the blood that Abel shed. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ was the one who came and he died for us. And through his shedding of his blood, man, we are given just complete protection by the Lord. For us, we can never pay back our debt. For us, we can never pay back our sin. And yet God is still able to mark us and save us and bring us to paradise because of what Jesus Christ did. 
this is the hope of salvation. What a good God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. And Lord, I pray at this time for just each one of our brothers and sisters.